Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And without further ado, thanks very much once again to Good Greg, to be here, Paul. Greg for, for agreeing to do this. Um, first of all, let's start with the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. Brexit. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously... It, you don't want it to dominate conference, and there are other issues, but obviously Brexit does dominate lots of what you do in your, in your day job. Um, so let's start first with what are the consequences, in your opinion, of a no-deal Brexit that, that many businesses and industry are talking about in recent days? We've had the car industry, we've had bosses of Toyota and Jaguar Land Rover, who are saying that literally their factories may have to you know, halt production. Um, is that project fear... Or is it project reality? Well, so the first thing I have to say is that, sure, Brexit is a, is a big issue and it's a really important issue. But there is so much going on uh, in the government, in the country and around the world that uh, is gathering pace irrespective of that. I mean, one of the, uh, one of the frustrations I sometimes uh, have uh, is that the, the national conversation, completely understandably, uh, has Brexit uh, at the, the top. If we weren't talking about Brexit, I think we would be talking about the astonishing revolution that's taking place, probably the biggest revolution in business and industry and commerce since the first industrial uh, revolution. And uh, here in, in Birmingham is a, uh, is a place that exemplifies uh, that. The, the change that is uh, taking place in virtually every industrial sector through through the analysis of big data, through artificial intelligence, the clean growth revolution, uh, the advances in, in science. These are, uh, to me, incredibly uh, exciting developments that we have a, a unique opportunity. Uh, just at this point in time, we can be at the head of that. And through the industrial strategy, uh, as you know, and we've talked about this uh, a lot, uh, we are, we're organising and implementing measures to make sure we can take... Uh, we can take advantage of that. So, so a lot of what, uh, what I do and my colleagues do, and I'm glad to see uh, some of them in the, in the room, uh, is about getting on with implementing uh, and taking, ch- taking the chances that we have for uh, what I think is a, a very exciting future. But on the, the point of Brexit, what, to, what do businesses uh, say? Well, uh, I think we, we need to, uh, to be constantly... Uh, listening to businesses. Our, uh, our economy, our society depends on flourishing businesses. So what have they said? Well, the first thing uh, that they communicated uh, very clearly, not every single business, but, um, but I would say for the most part, uh, is to, to make sure that we have uh, a, a period of transition, hence the implementation period, that was listened to, that became part of our negotiating remit, and of course it's... Um, it's agreed as part of the uh, withdrawal agreement. Um, what else um, have they said? Well, uh, part of the being able to take advantage uh, of the future opportunities is to be part of very uh, sophisticated, uh, efficient supply chains. Um, what does that require? 
it requires uh, making sure that we don't introduce any disruption to existing supply chains and we do everything that we can uh, to allow this, these international networks to, to flourish. And so uh, what Chequers has proposed in response to that uh, is to be very clear that not only do we want to minimise uh, frictions of the border, but we want to eradicate them uh, altogether. So there, there are two areas in which the, I think the voice of business uh, has been clear, uh, and we've acted uh, very clearly to, uh, to, uh, to further that, that requirement and that ambition. But th that's, that's if checkers goes ahead. But if there is no deal, businesses like the car manufacturers have said bluntly, their, their car factories may actually grind to a halt. I mean, does that worry you? Do, when people on, on various sides of the argument say, well, that's just an exaggeration, what's your reaction? Do you, is your reaction, well, actually, they know what they're talking about? Well, I think if you have the, the leaders of companies, um, many of whom have no particular stake in, uh, in domestic politics, if they, if they describe how their businesses uh, operate. Um, and you know, the motor industry, obviously, here in the West Midlands, is a very important one. Um, it is, it's a matter of great pride that we have such a, a strong and flourishing uh, industry. The fact that we uh, can produce vehicles in which we don't need to keep great warehouses to, to stock parts. Uh, I've been around production line after production line. They, they say, uh, with some pride, you know, Two hours worth of uh, stock is all that is uh, held here. You can come and uh, and see it. You can see that being uh, bespoke uh, manufacturers being uh, being put together on the basis of stock that arrives. When you see it with your own eyes, and when businesses say that, I think you've got to be respectful, and you've got to uh, to listen to what they say and act on it. And that is what what we've done, uh, and what is the basis of the Chequers proposal. Now, obviously, um, over the channel, uh, some people are viewing Brexit with a sort of BDI. Um, Caroline Fairburn from the CBI announced overnight that one car CEO was being flown out in private jets to meet Emmanuel Macron about, and discussing relocating business in France. Does that worry you? Well, I think it would be no surprise um, that in a highly competitive world, and if we're talking about... Uh, motor manufacturing. There is intense competition for every, for the location of every new model. Every major uh, auto company uh, operates uh, in, uh, according to a similar way that they, uh, when a new model is to be built, uh, plants around the world and across Europe compete uh, for the the opportunity to host it, uh, as it were. And these things are very competitive. And um, uh, I'm well known as someone that uh, that. Um, joins in that competition, and uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud that of all of the major competitive decisions uh, that have taken place um, during the time I've had this, this role and since the uh, referendum, uh, we've been highly engaged in every single one when it comes to car manufacturing, uh, we have won, whether that's uh, Nissan in Sunderland, uh, whether it's Toyota in Derbyshire, uh, whether it's the, uh, the Mini uh, in Oxford, uh, whether it's the, uh, uh, the, um, the Luton uh, plant for PSA uh, making the, the vans, all of them, uh, we have, uh, we've competed and we've won. So, and that, and that so, so it doesn't surprise me that, and, and I know from experience, that these things are uh, highly 
fought over. But the reason that we have won is we have uh, demonstrated not only that we are a fantastic place to manufacture, but through our industrial strategy, we've made a, a big forward commitment for, for years ahead to advancing our progress uh, as a world leader. So whether it's in uh, batteries, we know that uh, in the, the years ahead, there is going to be a complete revolution in the way that cars uh, are powered. Uh, and so we have established through the industrial strategy uh, the Faraday challenge to make us uh, one of the world leaders, not just in the, the development of the ideas, uh, but in the manufacture uh, of batteries. And just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had uh, Williams, for example, committing uh, to, uh, to uh, battery manufacture uh, in, uh, in this country. So it doesn't surprise me that, that we have competition, uh, but we can win that competition. It's one of the reasons that uh, I believe that we should be activists, we should make the case, but we should have a strategy that, that demonstrates that we are going to be, for many years to come, the go-to place to manufacture cars, and for that matter, uh, aeroplanes, satellites, and uh, uh, all of the manufacturing uh, products that are internationally mobile uh, in that way, as well as being a good home for services businesses. But that 100% record, it is at risk, isn't it, if you don't get the right Brexit deal? Well, it's, they've been very clear that the, uh, the, the competitiveness of these plants um, is, relies on, uh, on very tight margins. Um, and... Uh, small differences in costs that, that might appear to be small actually can be very decisive when it comes uh, to a head-to-head -head competition with another plant. And, and so, of course, that's the case. I, I, from my discussions over a long period with you know, multiple different uh, plants uh, and uh, owners, small as well as large businesses and you know, the component manufacturers that we have uh, in this country are also uh, highly competitive uh, and they export a lot of their products uh, to the continent, to, uh, to big firms there. So, uh, so the, the frictionless, uh, the ability to trade without frictions uh, is uh, incredibly important and that is, uh, that is well uh, understood. But just to, to make one other point uh, about this, uh, the the motor manufacturers that I talk to and, uh, and many businesses beside and the business representative bodies uh, are making the identical points to our counterparts uh, in Europe. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the same ambition and requirement to have a deal that allows what has been a successful system to continue is obviously not just for us. They've, been, they've expressed themselves very satisfied with the proposals that we've made and quite rightly, they're making that argument to uh, our negotiating counterparties uh, in Brussels and international capitals. Now, you mentioned AI and obviously biotech and biomedical industries are one of the yep. you know, part of this new revolution. Um, but this, only this morning, Jeremy Farrow, who's the, um, the director of the Wellcome Foundation, they've been here for 80 years, they invest huge amounts in Britain. Um, he said that a no-deal outcome would be hugely damaging to NHS patients and research collaborations on things like child cancers. Now, he also said that Wellcome's presence in the UK is not conditional. In other words, he, he was suggesting that they could leave. Um, what, what's your response to a big funder like that suggesting it could leave Britain? Well, you always have to uh, not to take for granted the, the presence of important businesses here, or in that case, um, 
uh, funders and research organisations. Every day we need to, uh, to, to fight for and to, uh, and to reassert uh, our credentials uh, as the place to locate. Now, when it comes to, to scientific research, uh, that is incredibly strong. I mean, we are the, uh, one of the world's leading scientific nations. In fact, only America has more Nobel Prize winners uh, than, than we do. Uh, our universities are some of the, uh, the best in the, in the world. Uh, that is well, uh, well known. Uh, again, through the commitment that we've made uh, in the industrial strategy, and uh, life sciences has a, a major part in that, that has been very widely welcomed. It's got the biggest increase in research and development uh, to be at the cutting edge of the next breakthroughs uh, that we've ever had uh, in this country. So there is a lot of confidence in the fundamentals. Uh, but, uh, but I know and, and welcome know uh, that science uh, is a good example um, where knowledge doesn't respect frontiers. Um, if, you, uh, if you have the privilege of going to the Nobel Prize giving ceremony, and UK ministers quite often, you get, you get invited if you've got a, uh, a prize winner from your country. So uh, I've had the, the chance to go and, um, and literally so many of my colleagues uh, have. But the fascinating thing is when you see the... Uh, the prize ceremony. It used to be the case that, that the Nobel Prize uh, prizes in the sciences were awarded to you know, individual, uh, individuals uh, of, you know, of outstanding brilliance uh, who had uh, come up with some great breakthrough uh, or insight themselves. Now, there are almost always two teams, um, two research teams. And uh, from sort of witnessing one after another come up to, to receive their prize, it struck me how international those teams uh, are, usually comprising people uh, from multiple different uh, countries. And I think that tells you something. It tells you that actually if you want to be you know, the, uh, the most innovative, the most creative, you know, at the top of the tree in the world, you need to be open uh, to ideas and collaborations uh, that cross borders. And so, uh, again, it's very important uh, that the, uh, the agreement that we reach should allow that to, to continue. And is that your message to Conservative fellow backbenchers um, who are suggesting that actually chuck checkers, checkers is not the right direction? Is your message to them, look, you're putting at risk not just jobs in the car industry, jobs in the biotech industry? Is, is it that blunt? Well, I see it as missing out um, on fantastic opportunities for the future. We are, as it happens, uh, a country that is superbly well positioned uh, in most of the big transformations that are taking place across the, the world uh, today. Uh, we've talked about the auto industry, yet there is more change in the next 10 years going to happen to cars uh, than according to uh, a veteran uh, of the industry that, um, uh, that I've spoken to in the whole of his 40-year uh, career uh, in the industry. We're moving uh, from petrol and diesel to electric uh, engines. Uh, we're moving uh, from having to, to drive a car by turning a steering wheel uh, to having it navigated by sensors and satellites such that you know, someone born today, uh, when they turn 18, will probably think it's impossibly archaic, the idea that you, you had a disc that you had to sort of turn left and right in order to navigate. These changes are happening. Your clean energy, the whole of the world uh, is moving to, uh, to renewables. Uh, the advances in medical science that we've, uh, we've talked about, uh, ditto. In these areas, we are well-placed to not only uh, 
dominate uh, the, uh, the creation of new ideas uh, here, but to create jobs up and down the country, really good jobs, and to export more to Europe and across the world. To do that, we need to be able, it seems to me, to, to build on the, the foundations that are successful there, uh, and industry from, uh, from manufacturing to pharmaceuticals and life sciences, uh, has been clear that the ability to trade without introducing new barriers and frictions is very important to that. So I think we should be, this is, yeah, I, I think, a time of opportunity and excitement, and we should be, we should be moving towards that and, uh, and grabbing it with both hands and reasserting uh, our leadership uh, in these areas, rather than uh, taking any steps that would, uh, would undermine that. Would you welcome more companies talking about what the impact of a no-Brexit would be? I mean, is it helpful for the, for the public to know the sort of insider view from most businesses? Listen, I think it's up to, to them. Business has a perfect right to, uh, to speak out and, and give their views. Equally, they have uh, a perfect right to, uh, to keep their own counsel or to communicate uh, to, uh, to policymakers uh, in a way that is not uh, is not public, they can uh, they their responsibility is to uh, is to their employees and shareholders to to do what is best for their business, and uh, I think it's for them to to decide. Now, a key part of Checkers is this common rule book mm. um, with the EU. Um, now, you've talked about it. The Prime Minister's talked about it, how important it is. The Canada model of some Tory backbenchers doesn't have that common rule book. Mm. They they think the common rule book is the problem. Um, but if, if you opt for the Canada model, what is the impact on industries like the car industry, industries like the ones you were talking about in the 21st century? Um, it, would the Canada model basically cut off a lot of those options or make them more difficult? Yes, the, so one of the, uh, the problems of the, uh, of the Canada model, a, uh, a free trade agreement of that sort, is that it requires frictions at the border. It requires uh, checks at the, the border. Um, I think everyone recognises that and acknowledges it doesn't do uh, what is necessary to, to avoid those frictions that, as I've described, uh, I think would, uh, would set back our competitiveness. And so uh, it, is, uh, it is one of the reasons that when the Cabinet uh, met and considered the, uh, the options, um, that 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 kind of uh, arrangement uh, was not backed. And in particular, the, the impact on supply chains, even if you could sort out the Northern Ireland issue, you're saying that basically, even if Canada had that, somehow the Northern Ireland issue resolved in some way, some high-tech solution, it would still undermine our supply chains, our industrial strategy, because, it, because of the friction. It would have had between, border and Cal, uh, between Dover and Calais and elsewhere. Yeah, the breakthrough that, that Chequers... Uh, made was to to concentrate on what is required to avoid introducing those checks at the at the border, those frictions at the border, uh, and uh, and that is why it's been welcomed by uh, by industry, by business, and by uh, the particular firms. I mean, um, when Toyota uh, were speaking this week, one of the things that they said was that that checkers. Uh, would meet the conditions for them to, to continue to, to invest. Right. Now, the impasse over, over checkers, if there is one, um, one way of solving it could be by, dare I say it, 
delaying things slightly. Now we've got a slide of a BMG poll which um, should come up here. And we asked people, um, would you support extending the UK's exit beyond March 2019 if that meant getting a better trade deal? We've got 41% who said they'd support that, 33% opposed it, and 26% didn't know. What would you make of that? I mean, that's from the public's view of this, that they'd rather get things right with, when it comes to trade than just have an arbitrary date. Well, we, we absolutely need to get things right, but I don't think we should... Uh, I certainly don't think we should extend um, the, uh, the dates. I think the, the matters that need to be resolved, uh, I think, are not more likely to be resolved if we uh, delay and extend in perpetuity. I think we need to get on with it and we need to come to an agreement. And I think it was always foreseeable, um, you know, right from the, from the date of the, from the day after the, the referendum, that the, you know, the full period of negotiations would be, would be used, as it were, and, uh, and that there would be, you know, the, uh, the action would take place, if I can put it that way, you know, as you got closer to, to the end of that period. That's, that, is, that is often the case in negotiations, in my experience, and, um, and probably particularly so with the, the European Union. Now, can I ask you a little bit about um, migration and the skills that business need? Um, lots of business want reciprocal preferential treatment for EU and UK workers. They want it to continue, and they think that should be a key part of whatever deal we come up with with the EU. Are you making that case in Cabinet for them? Well, we've had the, the advice of the Migration Advisory Committee, um, and I think, it was a, I think it was a good report. It was an authoritative uh, report. Um, and uh, what it said was that we should have a, a migration system when we're able to, uh, to, to make the choices ourselves um, that meets the needs of the economy. And one of the things that they describe the present uh, arrangement as doing is not allowing us to do that. In effect, it is uh, driven by the, the choices that individuals uh, make rather than uh, by the needs of the economy. Uh, so I think the, the observation there that there is no reason in principle uh, why uh, someone that is... Uh, happens to be a citizen of another EU member state um, should have a different treatment to uh, to some other uh, country. Uh, I think that is perfectly reasonable. What they also said was, uh, as is common uh, in many uh, free trade agreements, for example, uh, sometimes when it comes to uh, uh, to agreements on services, uh, for example, uh, there are. There are mobility agreements between parties to uh, to free trade agreements, and so um, they've they've set that out clearly, and that seems to me a reasonable approach. We've um, uh, we've endorsed in principle the uh, we've backed the uh, uh, the report. We've welcomed the the report, um, and what the cabinet has said, we'll come forward and respond to it uh, with a with a white paper. Then, a bit. but the, the 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 migration advisory committee also said, and it was a big caveat that their recommendations were on the assumption that UK immigration policy was not included in any agreement with the EU. It may be included in an agreement with the EU, may it? No, they were, they, they were very clear, just the way that I've said. They said that um, uh, in the absence of any, uh, any provisions of any free trade agreement, whether it's with the EU or any other uh, country, there's no reason in principle why um, one nationality should be treated differently from another, but they, they pointed out that in free trade agreements, uh, 
across the world with many different countries, sometimes there are mobility provisions there. But the, but the one thing that that uh, uh, does not require is what we have at the moment, which is uh, the free movement uh, of labour, which the, the committee said uh, is, makes the, uh, the migration policy that we have not driven by the needs of the economy, but, but through uh, other reasons. And would you like to see some flexibility in the, the timing of all this when it comes to the transition? Would you like to go maybe beyond the transition if business requires that? Well, I think we're, we're getting a bit of, ahead of the, the discussion here. So we've had the, uh, the report of the, uh, of the MAC. Um, we've, uh, we've discussed it uh, in Cabinet and we've had a presentation uh, from its chair. What we now need to set out, and um, Sajid Javid and our colleagues will be, will be making some proposals as to how we, how we act on that. And I think we, we need to see how they... Uh, how they're described. And is there any particular business case you'll be making part of that discussion? Well, always, and just as we've uh, talked about earlier today, I think it's, uh, I think it's so important that, that the, the experience and the views of businesses, uh, and they won't always be unanimous, um, but they are uh, fairly but robustly uh, expressed and, uh, and communicated uh, in these discussions um, so that they can be, uh, they can be influential. Um, and I'll always do that. I think any uh, business secretary uh, would do the same. Now, the other elephant in the room at this conference um, is not just Brexit, it's Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> uh, he's not here at the back, I don't think. Um, but he has said this morning that HS2, which would be a good idea to stop it, um, halt it, spend the money on a Northern Rail link instead. What impact you would that have on jobs and on your industrial strategy if you stopped HS2 right now? I know that you're, you're doing lots of work, certainly with Andy Street, on the impact of HS2 locally. I think it would be completely the wrong uh, approach. One of the, one of the besetting criticisms, uh, I think, of uh, successive governments in the UK is that we haven't got on and invested in the supporting uh, infrastructure uh, for the for the economy. We've made a uh, decision uh, to uh, to invest in HS2. I think it's important that we follow through on that. There was a similar uh, notion that it was thought that that Gordon Brown was uh, contemplating many years uh, ago, um, and uh, I seem to remember there there was a delegation uh, of the the leaders uh, of all of the the big northern cities. Um, northern cities, uh, uh, saying this would be, it should be the last thing um, that should be contemplated, and that we need to uh, we need to depend on this investment that's being made. And you see here in uh, in Birmingham, I say we've got some uh, some locals uh, in the room already, uh, even before uh, it is um, uh, it's close to being opened. The the regeneration that it that it is bringing uh, to. Uh, to the area around the, the terminal that it's going to come to here is already palpable. And Andy Street, um, uh, again, is someone that, that is a big champion uh, of this and, and has been from the outset. Now, another poll finding we, we, we came up with was about Boris's relative popularity. Now, although he's the main choice of most people to succeed Theresa May, there's a big caveat, which is that if he became Tory party leader, this Tory party would lose a general election to Jeremy Corbyn. 
Whereas if Theresa May was leader, the Conservatives have a two-point lead, 27 to 25. If Boris Johnson is leader, you have a four-point deficit, 25 to 29. Does that underline the case that maybe Boris isn't the panacea to the party wills? Well, I don't want to get into you know, to the, the electoral prospects of, um, uh, of any putative leader of the, the party. We've got a, we've, as is evident, we've got a very big task ahead of us not just with Brexit, but all of the other areas that we've talked about. Uh, I don't see there being uh, a, a vacancy there, and I think we're all better uh, concentrating on, uh, on the job in hand. How damaging was Boris's F-business comment? Well, I was um, very clear. I thought that was, uh, that was totally uh, the wrong thing to, uh, to say, and I was surprised that that anyone could even think that. I mean, if you consider how fundamental, all the things that we've been talking about, all of these, you know, the industries of the, the future, the, the opportunities for, uh, for new jobs, for the transformations that they can take place, all of them uh, will be uh, pursued by businesses, investing their, uh, their investors' funds at risk uh, in these ventures. We depend uh, for our prosperity uh, on businesses succeeding. There is no successful economy anywhere in the world. In fact, there's no successful society in the world that does not have successful and flourishing businesses. And I think we need to be, I think we should all be completely clear about that, which is why uh, I, was, uh, I was shocked to hear that. And as a result, are you pleased that he's no longer in the cabinet? No, I think Boris, no, I, Boris is obviously, a big talent and I thought did great things when he was uh, Mayor of London. I was a, uh, a big uh, supporter of, um, uh, of what, he, uh, what he achieved and what he brought to it. I'm, I'm disappointed that he doesn't feel that he can uh, support the, the policy of the, the government and serve there, but I certainly don't take no pleasure uh, whatsoever in, um, in that. Um, more broadly, since the Labour conference, several of your colleagues have talked of the need to make the case stronger for a popular conservatism, a sort of populism that seems to have lacked in the last couple of years. George Freeman said that the party risks becoming a rump party of nostalgic nationalists. Is he right? Is that the risk? No, I don't, I don't see that. And uh, I think if you, again, look at all of the, the opportunities that we have uh, in front of us, uh, I think this is a, a time. We'll, we're going to come to an agreement, I'm confident, with the, the European Union and, uh, and what has been dominating the national discussion for the last two and perhaps three years um, for totally understandable uh, reasons uh, will eventually give way. And I think when, the, uh, when we survey uh, the, the world and the opportunities uh, before us, which, which we're doing, but I think you know, the, 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 in terms of, the, uh, of what, what dominates the uh, the top line and the, uh, and the headlines has been Brexit. But I think you can see there you know, amazing possibilities uh, for, uh, for the UK. Uh, and you know, we are, of all the countries in the world that, that are most favoured in terms of their, uh, their skills, their attributes, and the, the ability to, to take advantage of these uh, opportunities, I think we are uh, in the vanguard. Uh, and uh, and I think when, uh, when you see that, when you do that, and, uh, and you see the, uh, 
the response uh, of companies, uh, I think, investing, creating good jobs uh, here, I think it'll be evident that actually the country's best days are in front of us. Now, you said you're confident there'll be an agreement, um, but not a lot of the public share that confidence so far. What do you say to those people who are putting on hold key decisions in their lives until they find out what's a clearer picture about Brexit? Whether people are delaying buying a home right mm -hmm. now, that seems to have a big impact on the housing market, whether they're delaying starting a new business. Are they, are they being prudent or are they being misguided in holding back? Well, Every business, every individual, obviously needs to, uh, to make decisions uh, about the, the future and to, and to consider uh, all of the, the eventualities, all of the, the possibilities. And uh, I, I can't criticise anyone for, for doing that. The, the government uh, is doing that. But what I say to, uh, to businesses when I meet them and talk about you know, making the case for investing in Britain, and we've talked about you know, examples. I fly around the, the world when, and talk to boards and describe you know, what, what we're doing through the industrial strategy and talk a lot about Brexit. Uh, and what I say is that, uh, of course, in the, the scenarios that you, uh, have to, that you consider when you take a decision uh, as a board, uh, of course you need to, uh, you want to look at the, uh, the full spectrum uh, of, uh, of possibilities. Um, I understand that, and you will need to do that. But don't put excessive weight on the most disadvantageous outcomes, because I don't think that is going to result. By all means, include it in your uh, assessments uh, and your uh, analysis. But I think overwhelmingly the most uh, likely uh, outcome uh, is going to be that we, we reach an agreement uh, in time with the, the rest of the European Union, that it's going to be a good uh, agreement that is going to work in both of our interests, is going to allow the, the mutual prosperity that we've been able to enjoy to continue. Uh, and so make a cool-headed uh, assessment, um, but don't, uh, don't place a disproportionate emphasis uh, on, uh, as it were, the, uh, the most extreme uh, eventualities. And one way or another, the other thing uh, is that the, uh, we will, over the, the next few uh, weeks and months, uh, we'll know the, uh, the outcome uh, of these discussions. Uh, and one of the things that I think it's been reported that the, the Governor of the Bank of England uh, said is that uh, once we get to that point, there is substantial upside. There'll be a real fillip to, to the economy. I think, a, I think uh, some investment decisions uh, have been waiting uh, to see what the future circumstances will be. Uh, and I think the combination of a good deal uh, and the strategic opportunity that we have uh, can make for uh, a very promising time uh, ahead once, those, uh, once that is settled. Now, one area that's not strictly Brexit that you've been focusing on is, is helping consumers. Um, now, lots of the industry, the energy industry, didn't think you were going to impose a cap on uh, bills. You did do it in the end. You called their bluff. Um, and we've done a poll which shows the popularity of this kind of thing. And you've recently announced, or rather through the, the CMA, the, the watchdog, that you're going to look at extending this idea of, of other areas as well where perhaps broken markets are. And we've got, a, we've got some stats here uh, which show that a cap on mobile phone bills is supported by 61%. <laughs> surprise, surprise. 
broadband, a cap is supported by 65%, mortgage costs, 55%, and even grocery bills supported by 58%. Now, does, it, does that just show that people actually don't like paying a lot of money? Or does it, is there something bigger here about broken markets? Well, uh, of course, uh, no one wants to pay more than they, uh, they need to. Um, but what... Um, uh, let me say a few things about it, because I think this is, um, uh, th this is an important... Uh, direction of, uh, of policy. Uh, one of our sources of success uh, in this country uh, is that we have been uh, a very good place for businesses to trade and for consumers to have confidence uh, in the, uh, in the, the companies uh, that operate here, both and uh, employees too. Uh, we're a place of, uh, of high standards, uh, I think well set. Uh, and in particular, uh, we have been a real uh, source, a beacon in the world when it comes to getting uh, the right approach to consumer regulation. And I'll give you an example. When we correctly, in my view, privatised the utilities, um, we knew, or our predecessors knew, that they, we were uh, privatising, in some cases, monopolies or, uh, or oligopolies. Uh, and so what was put in place uh, was a price regulation, RPI minus X, uh, as it was, that made sure that monopoly power couldn't be used against the consumers uh, of the day. That was very successful. It allowed the privatizations to, to take place and to continue. And it was taken up uh, across the world. We became uh, a beacon for good regulatory practice. But of course, uh, as times change, uh, the the challenges uh, change. And just at the, the moment, one of the big uh, consequences uh, of what I've described earlier is, is this worldwide revolution uh, in the analysis of data uh, and uh, artificial intelligence uh, is that it's possible, not, not for some kind of individual evil genius, uh, but for, a, for an algorithm, for a computer program to know so much <coughs> uh, about your individual behavior uh, and your, your propensity to, uh, to, uh, to withstand any price uh, increases, that you, could, you can have pricing that is uh, generated that really you kind of squeezes pe many people who, for whom I think uh, it, would, uh, it would not be fair to be treated in, in such a way. So uh, if you're able to establish that you know, based on the data that you've collected, you know, someone... Uh, perhaps of a certain demographic characteristic, perhaps living in a certain place, is highly unlikely to, uh, to have you know, access uh, to, to the means to drive a, a hard bargain. Uh, then there is the possibility uh, for, uh, for a pricing to, to be imposed that I think would be damaging uh, to the confidence that consumers have. Another example that, uh, that is common is in the airline industry, where the uh, the Civil Aviation Authority uh, at the moment uh, is looking into whether it is uh, fair for, again, an algorithm to detect whether you've got people of the same surname uh, checking into a flight and allocating them seats in opposite uh, ends of the plane so that they are essentially nudged to pay more to sit together. Now, uh, this is something that, you know, is... Uh, is, not, is not illegal. Um, we can't split children uh, up from their parents. But the CAA are asking, is this a reasonable thing to do? 
Now, these are questions. These are new questions that, you know, when you, uh, when you didn't have that data, it wasn't possible to, to know that. Um, uh, there was no issue to be addressed. But these are modern questions of a modern consumer society uh, that are arising here, but in every country in the world. And so what I want us to be uh, in a position to do, just as we were in the early 1980s when we were privatizing uh, industries and making sure that uh, it was in the right framework uh, of consumer uh, protection, I want us to, to lead the world uh, in that. So I've asked the, uh, the Competition and Markets Authority, and I've appointed Andrew Tyree, uh, the former chair of the Treasury Select Committee, uh, to, to lead the CMA. Uh, to, to develop that good practice so that we can, uh, as we've been talking about throughout this conversation and as the industrial strategy is founded on, we can embrace these new technologies uh, and changes in the world uh, with confidence and enthusiasm because we've thought uh, about some of the, uh, the challenges that they uh, impose. So that's the approach that we're going to take and I want us to be uh, world leading uh, in, uh, in this new practice because well, no other country uh, has, has done this, but every country uh, is going to experience during the, uh, the years ahead uh, similar challenges. So the mobile phone companies, the broadband companies, you're putting them on notice, just as you did with the energy industry, that look, we're, 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 we're gripped of this problem and we're going to back on behalf of the consumer. We could maybe use the power of government to, to help the consumer in that asymmetric relationship. Yeah, so in the case of the, uh, of the energy companies, the, the Competition Authority, the, the CMA, said that consumers... Um, were being uh, overcharged every year 1.4 billion pounds uh, a year, more than they would be if the, the market was operating uh, effectively. When I said at the time, when, uh, when I received that report, you've got a duty to act. Um, and, uh, and I said that I would, and we did. Um, and they, they should have believed it. Um, and so I think for uh, when we approach this... Uh, this review with the uh, with the CMA, I want this to be substantial and uh, and uh, and thoughtful as to how we can make sure that in the future, as new technologies uh, are deployed, we can embrace the consumers can uh, can embrace them confident that we're not going to have to uh, we're not going to pursue a policy that we've got to defend ourselves against the introduction of these new technologies because we haven't thought about uh, some of the regulatory consequences. Now, you mentioned AI, and you're right. I mean, a lot of people have talked about the way these algorithms are going to be increasingly used in lots of areas of public life. Um, various academics, I mean, there's an Israeli chap called Yuval Noah Hariri who said that basically <laughs> human beings are hackable animals who are susceptible to being manipulated, whether in terms of voting behaviour or other behaviour, uh, by sophisticated data models. Um, some of these academics suggest that we could have a stronger element on the ethics mm. of AI um, in, in teaching and also perhaps some sort of regulator. Yeah. Just as we've got the Human Embryology and Fertility Authority yeah. overlooking the bioethics. Yeah. Are you open to the idea that maybe when AI should the ethics... We're doing it um, right. in precisely the, the same way. So AI, you know, fantastic possibilities. It's going to transform the... The, the lives of almost everyone in the, in the planet over the, the decades uh, ahead. But for the reasons that you say, it does give rise to questions of to how you know, questions of ethics um, can be properly addressed. So again, as part of the industrial strategy, uh, we've got a, 
uh, a sector deal, as we call it, uh, with the uh, AI uh, industry. Uh, and we've set up a, uh, a centre for ethics uh, in the AI field, uh, precisely to do that, to, to think ahead about these problems, not to, to say, well, we can't, you know, we can't allow the deployment uh, of AI. Quite the opposite. We want to lean into it, we want to embrace it, we want to be the, the place in the world uh, that you can uh, deploy uh, and, uh, and test uh, new uh, methods of um, deployment of, uh, of AI. But to do that, you need to, uh, you need to, to march in pace uh, with, the, uh, with policymakers. On the high street, uh, I just want to check, I mean, what is government policy or what are you open to, to helping out retail? Obviously, you talk to retailers a lot as part of your, as your job. They, they come and tell you what their needs are. Yep. Do they, in a way, say, look, you, this is all so fast-moving, you just put out of it? Um, or do they also say, perhaps, look, there are things, some things you can do to help us, whether it's free parking in, in local areas, whether it's business rates? Are you, looking at, are you open to any of those? Yeah, so the, uh, obviously the, the high street is, uh, is undergoing a, a tough time, and we know that. Um, and we know some of the, the reasons uh, for it. I mean, when, when we talked about new technology, the fact is if you've got 20% uh, uh, of, uh, of retail goods being bought online, clearly that is going to have a, a consequence. And in, in, in areas like clothing, uh, it's higher than that. And the, the, the British Retail Consortium... Uh, themselves have said that they expect that there will be fewer shops in the high street in the future, and the high streets will be uh, will be different. Uh, so, what what do we need to uh, to do to to help that? Well, one of the things that we uh, are working with the industry uh, is again as part of the industrial strategy to have a uh, a sector deal with the retailers. It's always been a very fragmented uh, industry, and so the levels uh, of investment uh, in training, for example. Uh, compared to some other uh, sectors, uh, has not been uh, as high, and they haven't had the degree of uh, relationship uh, with uh, with government and uh, and research institutions to make sure that they can uh, benefit uh, from some of the uh, from some of the best uh, initiatives. And so, uh, in a way that you've seen the type of work and the uh, and the skills transformed uh, in many. Uh, manufacturing areas. We've talked a lot about uh, automotive today. I want to extend that to, to retail. And so we've got Richard Pennycook, who used to run the, who was chief executive of the co-op, uh, chairing that. I think there are uh, other aspects uh, as well. Uh, clearly, uh, the, the high street is, is going to change. And so uh, planning rules and regulations have to, uh, have to roll with that change to, to allow uh, the, the reshaping of high streets. I think we'll have, um, and we are seeing, more people living in town centres, uh, for example. We'll have uh, different uses. That is very important that we should, uh, we should adapt with that. Business rates um, is, uh, is a factor, and that's something that, the, uh, that retailers uh, uh, do say. We've made a commitment. The Chancellor uh, is conducting uh, a review of business rates. Uh, my own view is that it is, I think, a a presence on a high street, um, quite apart from the, uh, the, the turnover that, it's, that, that it has, I think makes a, a, a big contribution to, to the community and to, uh, to villages, towns and cities. Uh, and I think some recognition of that um, is appropriate. And through business rates? 
business rates will be one way of doing that. Yeah. Um, quick fire one. Um, gig economy. Your government responded to the Taylor review yes. on, on gig economy. Um, one suggestion was that you asked the low pay commission to look at higher minimum wage rates for workers on zero hours. Are you personally convinced that that actually is a really, really good way to shift the debate on that? Well, Paul, we haven't um, uh, responded uh, to the, the Taylor uh, review uh, in terms of the uh, what we're taking forward. What we've, uh, what we've done is we've um, just closed a consultation sure. on the proposals that Matthew Taylor made, but we will be responding uh, very shortly in the, in the weeks uh, ahead. Uh, that is, uh, I don't want to preempt the, uh, the publication of that. We're still uh, reviewing the, the responses, but, uh, but again, but perhaps I can uh, cite the, the Taylor report uh, as another area in which we, uniquely in the world, are considering what the, you know, the, the challenges uh, and the changes made by the modern economy, the new economy, uh, have for the way that we do things, uh, and getting ahead of it so that we will, uh, we will make changes so that when it comes to the gig economy, again, we can embrace it, uh, do embrace it enthusiastically, rather than seek to, to hold it at bay. But with some, some provisos for protections? Uh, yeah, so one of the things that we, uh, we have said, for example, uh, is that it should be much clearer, uh, if you're a worker in the gig economy, to know what your, uh, what your rights are. Um, in many cases, people simply don't know that, but there are, uh, it's a very substantial report. Uh, it goes beyond uh, protections, important though they are. It also talks about the, uh, the opportunity to, uh, through work, increase your, your level of skills, you know, make yourself and therefore the economy more productive, um, and that's a very important part of it as well, because probably outside uh, the family and education, um, the experience of work is where a lot of us develop our skills and talents and, uh, and, uh, and flourish through them. So I think uh, that aspect is very important as well. And last one, on tipping. Um, now, your department's had a, a consultation on tipping. Two years ago, it concluded. Nothing's happened since then. Are we expecting something soon on whether or not, you know, the, you can counter this situation where, for example, workers at TGI Fridays say that the, the waiters' tips are going into the, into the kitchen staff as a way round minimum wage regulations? Um, do you share concerns that actually some businesses are sort of manipulating the system? Uh, I, I do share the, the concerns that, um, uh, that the, what is given to uh, a waiter or a waitress uh, is, doesn't go to, to the person, even though the, uh, the person leaving the, the tip thinks that it, that it has and, and does. Uh, and the answer to your question as to whether you can expect something soon is yes. Ah. Right, and that's a perfect point at which to open this out to the audience. So, you've been very patient with me so far. Um, there's a chap right at the back who I think I might recognise. <laughs> you might have a question. Hi, Greg. Tom Newton Dunn Hello, Tom. the Sun. Uh, very interesting, your, your quite strong feelings on the supply chains and the need for frictionless borders, uh, a view which we know you feel quite passionately about. So, my question is. Would you feel able to support any Brexit deal with the EU that in any way increases friction on borders and therefore puts any sorts of barriers in place that are no longer in place now? Well, the, the substantial discussion that we had at Chequers um, concentrated on this point quite a bit. And I and others uh, produced evidence of what was required. And that's why 
we adopted the proposals that we had, we concentrated very intently on what was needed to avoid frictions at the border, uh, and that's why we've adopted the, the policy, and it's, it's very important uh, that we, we did. It is, uh, as you've seen from the reaction uh, of businesses, uh, something that they, uh, they strongly back uh, and regard as essential. Um, there's a chat there in the second row. Just wait for the mic, wait for the mic. Uh, it seems to me there's a huge paradox in what you've said today because on the one hand you're saying there's great opportunities out there with new technology around the whole world uh, and uh, we've al you've also got various uh, suggestions about consumer protection and so on. But the debate seems to have been hijacked by frictionless trade and the supply chains. And that's okay, but actually our trading relationship with Europe is not very successful. We've got a huge and growing balance of payments deficit with this, which damages growth. And with the rest of the world, we've got a very successful trading relationship. So what I don't, I think the problem is that the two things you're saying are diametrically opposed. And it seems to me the biggest opportunity is in the 85% of the world that is outside the EU. And all of the focus is hanging on to what we've got, which is not very successful. And the paper I, I gave you when I arrived actually shows you the statistics that proves that point. So why doesn't the government recognise that there are two sides to this debate and the government seems to have adopted the worst side? Let's go for the growth, not the bit that's failing. Well, I look forward to, uh, to, to reading the, the paper, but I think we need to, to have both. And I think it's, um, I hope it's evident from what I've been saying that we need to, uh, we need to continue what has been successful uh, whilst recognising that our leadership in many of these technologies uh, gives us global opportunities. And what I would uh, say is that you know, if in business you, you want to attract new customers, new clients, uh, that is something that you should pursue with tenacity and enthusiasm. But you also want to keep your current customers, and I think we should do both. There's a lady here in the front row. We'll take two or three together, so we get through. Yeah. Oh, actually, we'll take a few together. So we'll take you and then this chap here and then one in the middle. Hello, good morning, good afternoon now if it's lunchtime. Um, my name's Brenda Charles. I work for Flowgas Britain and I'm very interested to talk to you about certainly the clean growth strategy and um, the industrial strategy that you have. But in particular, we as a company have been investing in the future uh, successfully and we are looking on a, a huge plan of investment for um, LPG but what is your policy regarding continuity of LPG supply bearing in mind we had a very severe winter with bad weather which was very difficult to supply to customers and secondly the uh, refineries were down as well so our supply was very difficult for, for customers. Okay and this chap here on gas. Andrew Snowden, I'm a county councillor up in Lancashire, but also a director at the University of Salford, and I'm embracing the 85% in my day job. Um, I've visited five countries in the last 12 months trying to boost um, our partnerships and build new partnerships across the world for research, bringing students into the UK, etc. And it took us, and, um, and one of the, um, probably one of the, the unique things that I'm a Brexiteer who works in higher education, so uh, <laughs> that, that certainly tests your values. Um, so... We were out in India recently. We've done an MOU with Tech Mahindra, one of, the biggest, one of the biggest tech firms out in India. And it took us to travel all that way to be in a room with one of the deputy high commissioners 
to then to be able to tell us that there was British government funding for UK academics to be at a conference in Bangalore to talk about the future of smart cities. Now, we being a very industry-focused university managed to get people out within two weeks to India to go to that conference. But what we're coming up constantly is a disjoint between the need to start to, and, and the desire, I see it in government and through the industrial strategy to boost um, international trade and build those partnerships and then the connection on the ground yeah. with actually engaging with the organisations, the businesses that are actually going to do it. Right. So I'd just like to know what we're going to do more about and that. there's a chap in the middle there. Thanks. Uh, George Crozier from the Chartered Institute of Taxation. Um, there's a lot of live issues on business taxation at the moment. Um, and in particular, whether we've got the balance right between tax levied on high street stores and small business and tax levied on multinationals, particularly those that do most, if not all, of their business online. Um, I was really interested, I know it's the Treasury are the lead department on this, but what you see as your and Bayes' role in this, um, do you see yourself sort of pitching in for business into the debate? Um, are there principles that you think Bayes brings to the debate? Um, Okay, so those three, so gas first. So on, uh, on gas uh, supplies, um, it, was, um, it was Winston Churchill had a, uh, a dictum when, uh, when it came to energy security, um, uh, which was that it was diversity and diversity alone that was the key to it. Uh, and that is, uh, I think, rings true today. You need to make sure that we have uh, a diverse supply of energy sources, uh, and when it comes to, uh, to gas, uh, that we rely not just on, uh, on one country, uh, but uh, a widespread of countries. And that has been the approach that we've taken, and there's been a lot of investment, as you know, in LNG terminals uh, in, uh, in recent years uh, in pursuance of that, and that will continue to be the approach that we take. Uh, to Andrew's point on, um, uh, on higher education uh, uh, links uh, across the world, um, I'm delighted you raised it. absolutely right. One of the uh, the features of the industrial strategy, which you'll be aware of, is it introduced uh, new, uh, new visas, for example, uh, for PhD students to come and work uh, in UK universities uh, from around the world, and uh, scholarships uh, to be able to do that. Uh, and they have a fantastic uh, return. They, uh, they allow that kind of global cooperation that is the, the source of best, not just science, but it's, the, it's true in, in the creative uh, sectors and the arts and the humanities uh, as well. So that's uh, very uh, important. Um, the, uh, the, the challenge to, to make sure in other countries that that message disseminates you know, beyond the, uh, the national capitals right across the, the country is one that, um, uh, that I take very seriously. I, uh, I, I spend quite a bit of time going to, uh, to other countries. I've been to uh, India several times to, to meet with uh, university principals uh, and, uh, and others there. Uh, we I hope um, and know that part of our deployment of the industrial strategy, which is, um, uh, is printed in an ever-growing list of languages, and the, the higher education aspects uh, are well taken up. Uh, I work very closely with Liam Fox and his colleagues in the Department of International Trade uh, very much emphasise these opportunities, and I'm, I'm pleased that Salford is, uh, is pursuing them uh, in that way. To George's point on business uh, taxation, so just as I was saying when it comes to... Uh, to some of the, the questions uh, on, uh, on Brexit and the, uh, and the analysis of supply chains and frictions at the border. I think it is important. Uh, it's part of the, uh, the role uh, of my department to make sure that around, in all of the discussions, 
uh, you have the facts and the evidence deployed. Uh, and so, uh, so I do that um, uh, on behalf of small businesses. I meet every, uh, every week, every Wednesday morning uh, with the, uh, the Federation of Small Businesses uh, and the British Chambers of Commerce, for example. They, not everyone is a member of one of those organizations. And so uh, I and my, uh, my colleagues uh, spend a lot of time visiting uh, SMEs, hearing myself uh, what is on their minds. And that is uh, my approach is to, uh, is to deploy their evidence and their arguments uh, in discussions across government. Uh, and it, when it comes to uh, taxation, uh, as you say, it's the, the Treasury of the lead responsibility, but it's a cross-government uh, conversation. I think we should always recognize uh, that small businesses, and I speak as um, uh, as someone that grew up in a small uh, in a small business, um, my father was a uh, sole trader, and his father before him. Uh, there is a uh, there is a courage, it seems to me, uh, in operating as a small business when often you put your own whether well, savings if you have any, but sometimes your own house and assets on the line in pursuit uh, of an entrepreneurial idea. Uh, it is often uh, high risk to. Uh, to, to take on uh, someone else if you don't know, quite know whether uh, in doing so you're going to uh, have the, uh, the increase in turnover to, to justify it. So there is a, there's a great deal of uh, a risk uh, that is taken uh, and a kind of courageousness that small businesses uh, display day in, day out that I think should always be recognized uh, in the... Uh, in all of the arrangements that, that we have, from uh, from tax to uh, to their regulatory uh, arrangements with government, uh, some of the uh, the issues about uh, some of the big international companies and the online companies, uh, as you will know, given your organisation, these are part of international tax treaties. But we, as, as you know, because the the CIT has um, uh, advised um, successive chancellors uh, on this, we have been. Uh, the, the leading force in the world uh, for uh, an improvement uh, of the, the, the arrangements that have taken place there. Just final last two questions. Okay. The chap here has had his hand up. And so we've got a woman at the back. There, with the specs on. Yeah. Sorry, my name's Alexi. I'm here representing a trade body in the construction industry. And you know, we've talked about retail, technology, consumers, Boris, uh, Secretary of State, you didn't really talk about the construction industry. And post-Grenfell, post-Carillion, midst of a housing crisis, a late payments crisis, I can speak on behalf of the industry. I can share the polling with you if you want. There's a feeling that government and Bayes don't take the industry seriously and don't listen to the industry. Is that a fair assessment? And Lady that. Thank you. Becky Elliott, British Heart Foundation. Um, the Secretary of State has acknowledged that um, medical research is highly international. Um, and I was wondering how he envisaged the future immigration system allowing the UK to have access to the science and innovation talent that we need, not just at that Nobel Prize senior mm -hmm. level, but maybe at the lower um, sort of technical, lower paid technical roles that are so essential to the science that we 
we undertake Sorry. here. So I'd appreciate some thoughts. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Uh, so the construction uh, sector, uh, hugely important. Um, it features very strongly in the industrial strategy, and we have negotiated uh, a sector deal with the construction uh, sector to bring in uh, much of the innovation um, that, again, other sectors of the economy uh, have experienced. If we, if we talk about the, uh, the aerospace uh, industry, we've had a very long-standing, close collaboration through, uh, with the industry and government and research institutes to make sure that we have been at the cutting edge, as we are, of deploying new technology there. That has been less so in such an organized way for construction over the years, as you will uh, recognize. So the, the construction sector deal uh, establishes uh, a, a research and development uh, with an emphasis on the D, deploying the new uh, ideas, for example, in off-site construction uh, that can reduce the costs, uh, increase in, some, in many cases uh, the, uh, the reliability and confidence of uh, new buildings uh, and speed up uh, the construction. And that's been something that has been uh, jointly uh, backed by the, the industry uh, and by government. I think that's very important. Uh, on late payment, and this is, is not just the, uh, the construction sector uh, that, uh, that suffers uh, when, uh, when payments uh, are late, talking about small businesses, uh, small businesses of all kinds uh, in supply chains suffer uh, uh, through that. And one of the things that we'll be uh, setting out uh, are some steps uh, in which we uh, are going to, uh, to beef up the uh, the enforcement uh, against abusive practices uh, when it comes to using small businesses uh, unfairly uh, to keep them waiting for payment beyond what they've uh, contracted. And I think the, the sector will be uh, pleased with that. The last one on, uh, the last one on uh, uh, Becky's uh, point. Uh, so uh, there is a, there's a clear recognition um, that as part of the industrial strategy, if we want to succeed, it has to be international, and our medical research is a good uh, example of that. Uh, what the, the MAC committee report set out, again very clearly, is that we, we need to be uh, a, a country in the world that can, uh, can have people uh, of talent able to come here. It should be, they've proposed that the, uh, the system should be based on, uh, on skills, and so that will be to the advantage uh, of uh, areas uh, such as that. And so when we respond to it, uh, it will very much have that uh, in mind. Uh, I think you know, one of the things, whatever uh, side of the, the discussion uh, and the debate uh, you were in when it came to the, to the referendum, um, and I say this to, uh, to investors uh, around the world, uh, although uh, migration was uh, uh, much discussed and free movement uh, was much debated. I didn't pick up anywhere across the country uh, from any part of the, uh, the debate that there was some uh, that, uh, if I can put it this way, these, these pesky scientists um, and engineers um, shouldn't be coming into our country. I think quite the reverse. I think all sides of, the, uh, of that debate recognize that we need to continue to be uh, a country uh, in which the uh, the brightest and the best can come and work uh, and achieve uh, for this country uh, as, as well as for themselves. Thank you very much. And that's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank the Secretary of State so much for giving your time so generously. You. And you for coming as well. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thank you. Thank you.
With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply. Not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon.